you to open the Word of God to the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter. You'll find that on page 1,237. Listen, this is God's Word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Well, we just witnessed the baptism of a little girl, Sienna Ray, a member of our congregation. And you can be assured that Sienna did not ask to be baptized. She did not appear before the elders of the church expressing her delight in the Lord Jesus and how precious he is because he died for her. And she didn't live, or she hasn't lived long enough for us to see the fruits that the Spirit works in the lives of those who are true believers. And yet, Sienna Ray was baptized. There are many Christians who would disagree with what we have just done. They would say that when Reformed and Presbyterian churches baptize babies, it's, it's because the Reformation hasn't come full way, the whole way, that Reformed and Presbyterian Christians still carry about with them the baggage of the Roman Catholic Church, which baptized babies and has for generations. They think it's wrong that we do so because they insist that baptism should always be upon the personal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus of the one being baptized. And since, of course, infants can't profess their faith, ask Sienna Ray, if you doubt me, they ought not to be baptized. And they would base their argument on New Testament practice. They would point out to us that if you read through the New Testament accounts, particularly the book of Acts, it is always clear that it is important for there to be repentance and faith before there is baptism. So they would point to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he would say, repent, or where he did say, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Or they would point to the Philippian jailer, who in the middle of the night confessed faith in Christ, and then was baptized by the apostle Paul. They say, see, that's the New Testament pattern. Faith or repentance first, and then baptism following that. And because we have no desire to be acrimonious with our brothers and sisters, we, we grant them that point. I mean, everyone can see that as you read through the New Testament Scriptures that people did believe in Jesus Christ before they were baptized. At least those who came to faith in Jesus Christ from an unchurched or from a pagan background, those who were brought up outside of the covenant community of God 
they insisted that they first believe in Jesus Christ, trust in Him, and rely upon Him for salvation, and then they would be given the mark of belonging to Jesus Christ, which is baptism. For as many as you who have been baptized have put on Christ, as Paul would say in Galatians 3. And we agree with them that that's the pattern in the New Testament. And and would to God that we would see more of that in our day. And, And not only would we agree with them theoretically, but that's the very thing that we would do. That if we saw someone come out of the world into the church through faith in Jesus Christ, we would first ask them the questions of faith. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Do you love the Lord Jesus? Are you determined to forsake sin and pursue holiness? And upon the affirmation of those questions, we would then proceed to baptism. Reformed and Presbyterian folks don't run around the streets of Lethbridge baptizing individuals and then saying to them, you need to come to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's first faith and repentance, and then baptism. But we would have a couple of questions for our brothers and sisters. If you read through their defense of believer's baptism, that's what the Baptists call it, you will notice that their defense almost always begins with New Testament practice. They begin with the book of Matthew rather than with the book of Genesis. And in fact, they would usually leave the first 75% of the Bible as having really nothing to say of significance to our practice regarding children and baptism in the New Testament church. And all the while, when it was the only Bible, that is, the Old Testament was the only Bible our Lord Jesus had, and it was the Bible that the apostles in the early church only had. And yet, on the basis of the Old Testament Scriptures, our Lord Jesus and His apostles set out how the church is to be run. And so certainly we want to say to our brothers and sisters, don't you think the Old Testament has something to say about our practice of baptism? Doesn't the Old Testament inform us as to the status of children within the church of Jesus Christ? Certainly, the Old Testament can't be silenced. It must speak to us. And then we would ask another question. Agreeing with them that the New Testament pattern was faith first and then then baptism for those who were old enough to exercise faith, we'd ask, and what about their children? Did they have any status? Did they belong to the church in any way? Were they seen as any different than the children of their pagan neighbors with whom they once used to party and celebrate and worship false gods? Now that they've come to believe in Jesus Christ, now that they've received the sign of baptism, what about their children? And again we would ask, does the Old Testament help us answer that question? Well, by now, by now you know what my answer is. That if we're going to be thinking about covenant baptism, baptism either of believing adults or baptism of infants too young to profess faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to have to look at the whole Bible, all the Scriptures inspired by God from Genesis to Revelation. And I want to begin this evening a series Perhaps the next baptism, we'll do it again, another sermon. But a series, 
explaining our practice of covenant baptism here, not just infant baptism, but covenant baptism here, so that we might relish it, that we might cherish the great gift it is from God, and that we might respond in appropriate ways to God's coming to us when we were weak and helpless and placing upon us his sign and naming us with his name and calling us to live as his people. And this evening I want to demonstrate from the word of God that the church of Jesus Christ doesn't begin at Pentecost as if there were a church separate from the Old Testament people of Israel, but that the church of Jesus Christ spans Old and New Testament. There is one church of our Lord. I thought it would be helpful for us to read from Galatians 3. That's why it was read in our hearing this evening. Because in the church of Galatia, there were Gentile Christians. They had heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it in a very pointed way in verse 1 of chapter 3, that in the preaching of the word, Christ was publicly portrayed before them. He was placarded to them as the only hope of salvation, the only means by which a person could be reconciled to God. And so the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to these pagans, and they believed in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, embraced him as their Savior, and were saved. These Gentile Christians were not always Christians. They became Christians through the gospel and were incorporated into the churches of Galatia. And so there were Gentile Christians. Probably the church was predominantly Gentile Christians. But there were also Jewish Christians within the church, those who had grown up under the Old Testament laws and regulations and stipulations who grew up in the time of the shadows before the reality had come in Jesus Christ, but who now, having seen the gospel realized in Jesus Christ, and the, the, that, that Christ was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices and rituals, they had come to believe in Jesus Christ, and they were members of that same church. So there was a church of, of Jewish Christians and a church of Gentile Christians living together and the life together, if you know the New Testament at all, was not always a life of harmony. There was often friction and tensions between these two sets of believers. And the tension really came because the Gentiles or the Jewish Christians insisted that to really be a Christian, it was important for the Gentiles to become like the Jews. And most pointedly, to be a real Christian, it was important for the Gentiles to be circumcised like their Jewish brothers were. And that was the tension in the church in Galatia. And Paul argues strongly against it. He sees this insistence on circumcision as a turning to a different gospel, as a denying of the gospel of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. In fact, he says it so strongly in chapter 5. He says, you who insist on circumcision, you have fallen away from grace. 
For in Christ Jesus, circumcision nor uncircum- neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So he insists that it is unnecessary. More than that, it would be wrong for the Gentile Christians in the churches in Galatia to undergo circumcision. It would be a denial of the gospel of grace. And he backs up his position by reference to Abraham, the father of all believers. You'll notice, or you will have noticed as we read through the passage, how often Abram's name comes up in this chapter. And there's three things in particular that are mentioned about Abraham. The first thing we find in verse 6 is that Abraham believed God. Abram was a believer. As it says uh, later on in verse 9, that Abram is the man of faith. Just keep that in mind. We'll get back to that in the moment. What did Abram believe? Secondly, Abram believed the gospel. You can see that in verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now this is significant for us to understand. That the gospel did not appear out of nowhere when our Lord Jesus appeared on earth. Nor was the gospel first proclaimed by John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. The gospel was proclaimed already in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord came and said to those stricken uh, first parents, Adam and Eve, that one day someone was going to come who was going to crush the head of the serpent and bring life and liberty to those who were in bondage. The gospel was first proclaimed in Genesis 3, verse 15. And, as what Paul says here, the gospel was then reproclaimed to Abraham in Genesis 12. Remember, that's where Abram was called out of Ur of Chaldeans, and the Lord made a covenant with him, entered into covenant, and promised that in Abram's seed, all the families of the world would be blessed. And the seed through whom the blessing would come was, as Paul says later on in this chapter, was none other than Jesus Christ. And so the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ it's not a New Testament phenomena, as if the Old Testament didn't know anything about it. It was the gospel that was proclaimed to Abraham. And the blessing of that gospel was justification by faith alone and the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes it's thought that the blessing that was promised to Abraham was a piece of real estate in the Middle East. And that the the relationship in which God entered with Abram was was just a relationship of, of nationality with Abram as the father of a nation. But we insist on the basis of the Word of God that the, the covenant that God made with Abram was a spiritual covenant. That that the, the epitome of the covenant blessing was I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and if you trace that theme, refrain throughout the new, new Old and New Testament, you'll see that it climaxes in heaven. What does it mean to be in heaven? What is the pinnacle of Christian blessing? It's this, 
to have God as our God and by grace to belong to him as his people and subsumed under that great covenant promise that I will be your God and you will be my people is the promise of justification by faith alone. That's what Paul says here in verse 8. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That was the gospel promise. That salvation was not by works. It was not accomplished by our doing, but it was accomplished by the doing of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul explains in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon the tree. That was the gospel that was preached to Abraham. Justification by faith alone, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners, and the promised spirit. Abram was promised the spirit in the gospel that was preached to him so many years ago. Now remember that we are talking here about Abram, who was the father of the nation of Israel. But the interesting thing that Paul highlights here is that Abram is not only the father of believing Jews, Abram is also the father of believing Gentiles. So look at verse 7, if you would. Know then that it is those of faith, that is those who embrace Jesus Christ as he was portrayed as crucified, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. They're the sons of God as well, but they're also the sons of Abraham. And as the chapter ends, if you are Christ, that if, if you belong to Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's the same gospel. That's why you're children of Abram if you believe in Jesus Christ. Because it's the same gospel. It wasn't as if Abram was saved by his obedience or by his faithfulness. No, Abram believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. It's the same gospel. It's the same way of salvation. Not by the works of the law, but not by obedience, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the same inheritance Whatever is promised to Abram as the blessing of faith in the promises of God is the blessing that New Testament Gentile Christians receive as well. So we can read, for instance, in verse 9 of Galatians 3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Whatever blessing Abram gets, I as a Christian believer get too, because I'm blessed along with Abram. Or go look at verse 14. It says that because of the work of Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles. Not a separate blessing, but the same blessing that Abram gets comes to the Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. Now the point that I'm wanting to make this evening is a very simple point. It's a single point. And that is 
that there has always only been one church of Jesus Christ spanning the Old and the New Testaments and beyond. There's only always been one gospel that is justification through faith in Jesus Christ. There has only always been one way to salvation, that is, through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's always only been one gospel inheritance. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And whether you're speaking about believers in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ, or believers in the New Testament after the coming of Christ, whether you're speaking about Jewish believers who have embraced Christ as their promised Messiah, or Gentile believers who have embraced Christ as their Messiah. It doesn't matter. All believers share in the same blessing through the same gospel because there has always been only one church of God spanning both Old and New Testament. And this is confirmed for us in a number of ways in the New Testament Scriptures. But, but go to the end of Galatians, for instance, where you see what Paul says about the church. Galatians 6, verse 16. This is in Paul's closing address to his readers. And he says there in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That's the way it reads here in the ESV. And it makes it sound like there's peace and mercy upon those who believe that circumcision doesn't count for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. So, so peace and mercy be upon them. And then peace and mercy upon the Israel of God, as if they were two separate categories of people. That's unhelpful. It's better translated like this. And as for all who walk by this rule, this rule that glories in the cross of Christ, and that considers everything else as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of the exalted Jesus Christ upon the cross, all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. That is to say, those who cherish Christ and cling to him and trust in him, putting no confidence in the flesh, those are the ones who are the Israel of God. So that the New Testament church is God's Israel. And you see this confirmed by for instance, the Apostle Peter. And, and you'll see this among various authors in the New Testament. They'll take the titles that are given to Israel in the Old Testament and apply them to the church in the New Testament as if they suggest that it's the same organism that is in the Old and in the New Testament. And they do that because it is the same organism. There's one church. And so the Apostle Peter to his readers in chapter 2, verse 9, he says to them, but you are a chosen race, a title taken from Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, taken from what God said about Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. You are uh, that, uh, your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, taken from Hosea 1, verses 6 and 9. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Taken from Hosea 2, verse 1 and 23. That is, the titles given to the Old Testament people of God are carried over and applied to the New Testament people of God because it's one church, one body, one people of God. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that the church is a building. You know, Ephesians 2 is the, is the passage in which he speaks about the, the unity through the cross between Jew and Gentile. And he says there's one building that God has erected. The foundation of the building is the apostles, New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. One church built upon the same foundation spanning Old and New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 uses a picture of a tree. He says, you have a tree with roots. That tree with roots is the Old Testament Israel of God. And then there were branches on that tree. People, members of God's people in the Old Testament who, when Christ appeared on the scene, did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God lopped them off, cut off these branches, because they had rejected their Messiah, the one who had come to them to save them, to redeem them from the tyranny they were in. And then there were Gentiles who believed in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, God didn't start a new tree. Here's a Jewish tree, now here's a Gentile tree. No, he took those Gentile branches who had believed in Jesus and he grafted them in to the tree so that it would participate and be nourished by its life-giving roots. Not a separate tree. The same tree spanning the Old and New Testament into which believers, Gentile or Jewish believers, doesn't matter, are all members. And, and, and if a Jewish believer... Uh, or a Jewish person who was cut off from the tree, if they should repent and embrace Jesus Christ, then Paul says, they will be grafted back into the tree. But there's one people of God spanning the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church are not two churches, but one. Now, what does this have to do with baptism? Well, if we are going to understand the purposes of God for his church. It would be foolish for us to only receive instruction from the last 25% of the Bible. We can receive instruction from the first 75% of the Bible too because it's speaking about the same church, the same body, the same people of God. Of course there are differences. One of the differences is, is that the sign of membership in the Old Testament was circumcision placed on 
believers who had come to faith in the God of Abram and upon their children at eight days old. And New Testament circumcision, a, a bloody rite has been replaced by baptism. So there are differences, but fundamentally, it's one church. And so the instruction we receive in the Old Testament about the status of children in the church, the obligations placed upon families in the, new, in, the, in the church of Jesus Christ can be found not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And so to give you a, a preview of, 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 of future things, because there's one church, we can say that children, even as they were members in the Old Testament church, children are members of the New Testament church. And even as children in the Old Testament church received the sign of belonging to the people of God, which was circumcision, so children in the New Testament church should receive the sign of belonging to God, which is no longer circumcision, but baptism. And that will be demonstrated, God willing, at some point. Now, I can imagine that there are some who are saying, well, this is really difficult. It just seems so much easier to look at the New Testament and see they repented and believed and then they were baptized. Perhaps it is. No, no, it is probably simpler. But if we go that route, then we miss out on the richness of the dealings of God with his people throughout all the New Testaments. And we miss out on the wonder of what we just sang about from Psalm 87, that God's church is not an ethnic church. It is not just simply of those who are biologically connected with Abram. God's church is a spiritual nation so that, you know, even, even some of the, the enemies of Israel that we, we sang about in Psalm 87, Babylonians those who carried Israel off into exile, the Egyptians who enslaved them for so long, if these people believe in the God of Abraham, which is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then it's as if they are born in Zion, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that seems to be such a wonderful, glorious thing to think of that great multitude one day before the throne of God. Not the Jewish church off by itself worshiping God, and then the Gentiles off by themselves worshiping God, but this one body from every nation, tribe, and language, together with one voice crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. That would be a glorious, that will be a glorious day. And we can see the beginnings of it even now in this one church of Jews and Gentiles, all being professions of faith in Jesus Christ and therefore having put on Christ our children of Abraham. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, and gracious Father, we thank you that you are the unchanging God, faithful to all your promises, God who has entered into covenant with your people when 
we had rebelled against you in the garden, promising a Redeemer. And then in the fullness of time, you brought forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that uh, we might be justified by faith in him and receive the Spirit, so that we might call you Abba, Father. We pray, our gracious God, that you would help us to understand your word and to understand the, the place of baptism and to understand the place of our children in your church. We pray that we would love you and love the body of Christ for which he has shed his own blood and to look forward to that day when faith becomes sight and when all the gathered church of God shall worship you forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us 